Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Jenny Lee joined the Khan Academy in 2016 as President and Chief Operating Officer after a year as CEO in residence at a private equity firm based in San Francisco. Prior to that, Lee was part of Intuit's leadership team for 17 years where she led a team of more than 900 employees. Lee learned a dual BA in business economics and organizational behavior and management from Brown University and an MBA from Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Khan Academy is a nonprofit organization created to provide free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. The organization produces micro lectures in the form of YouTube videos, as well as exercises and tools for educators. All resources are available for free to anyone around the world. And I was at a, a TED conference nine years ago when I saw the founder of the Khan Academy, Saul, do a talk about it. And I've been enamored with the brand ever since. So, Ginny, I'm really excited to have you on the Second in Command podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, you're welcome. So how did you, um, first off, and I'm also enamored with your your background, your education. I couldn't spell Brown, let alone get accepted there. Um, I was the dumb kid in college. So the fact that you went to an Ivy League school and then and an MBA as well is just like, I'm, wow, um, kind of, in, I'm honored just to speak with you for that as well. Oh, Sorry. you know, I was the dumb kid in college too. Um, so don't worry. <laughs> All right. Well, you, you certainly figured out the game. How did you how did you get involved with the Khan Academy, and what was it that attracted you to the brand? Yeah. Um, so I you went through my background um, in 2014. I had such an amazing career at Intuit. Love, love, love the company. Had no idea I would be there for 17 years. I thought, oh, I'll do two to three years here, and then 17 years later, um, there I was. Um, learned so much from that company. It's such a wonderful place. Um, but I wanted something different. Um, you know, my son, my daughter was middle school, just beginning high school. And in those kinds of careers where you're one of 12 senior vice presidents of a $5 billion company, it's not a nine to five job by any stretch. Mm. And um, I realized that my kids were Growing up, time doesn't stay still when I'm ready. And um, I was just starting to take my daughter to visit some colleges. And I'm like, wow, what am I doing? Um, there's plenty of time to be the CEO of something, but there's not very many time when my kids are left at home with me. And so I took some time off. A mutual friend introduced me to Khan Academy. And, you know, I've always known about it. My kids used it on a transactional basis, so you, you know, uh, they listen to the videos and helps them with homework as a supplementary resource. Um, as I got to know Sal, who's an amazing person, um, and we can have a whole nother podcast about what that is, um, the mission has always resonated with me. Uh, I am the poster child of the very learner that Khan Academy is trying to help. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I'm a first-generation immigrant. My parents grew up and moved here from China. Uh, we emigrated uh, to inner city early 60s. And um, I 
we didn't have very much means. You know, we were on free and reduced lunch programs, things like that. And the very big constant that got me to the intro that you gave me, which was very gracious of you, um, was education and a very strong one. And so inner city kid going to a public school, gritting her way through on free and reduced lunch. I wish I had Khan Academy back then, but it didn't exist for us. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was the kid that tried to work really hard, um, couldn't afford an SAT book, uh, had to go to the library to use it because uh, I couldn't buy one from Barnes & Noble. And again, having a tool like this would have really helped me a lot. And so um, being able to take my 20 plus years of a high tech executive career to apply to a place like Khan Academy to help hopefully millions and millions of children achieve uh, like I did uh, with a lot of grit and a lot of hard work. Um, I think the world would be a great place. So that's what really motivates me and resonates with me of why I joined Khan Academy. Awesome. Yeah, you totally see the core purpose. I love that it actually resonated because that was, it would have helped you as well. Um, I'm really curious. So you got into the technology sector around 97. So you went through both the 2000 and the 2008 crashes. I was in the tech sector in Seattle in 2000. I remember leaving the city going, well, the last person to leave Seattle turned out the lights because everybody was shutting the doors. Yeah. So you were, you were able to navigate into it through the 2000 crash and through the 2007 or 8, 9 crash. What, what are some of the big lessons you learned from that? Because staying with the same company through those two big corrections, you must have learned a ton. I did. You know, Intuit, um, again, I can't speak well enough of it, uh, I've been incredibly blessed with three amazing um, when I joined the company Bill Campbell uh, was the CEO and then he moved on to be chairman um, and we had our first blip like you talked about in 2000 you know Quicken was not the 90% market share company anymore and we were solely Quicken um, and we had our first layoff and that was hard for the company. What I saw was an enormous amount of um, authentic leadership to weather that storm for its people. And that loyalty to those people got paid back with uh, the employees having longevity there. On top of that, we were very good at reinventing ourselves. So. Uh, Scott Cook, who's the founder of Intuit, talks about savor the pleasant surprises. And so as we were the Quicken company predominantly, a lot of their market research talked about needing a financial management software for small businesses. Mm. And Scott at the time was like, we're not a small business, we're a consumer, blah, blah, blah. This was made at the kitchen table with my wife, Signe, because she needed to learn how to manage the checkbook, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that was a pleasant surprise through the market research. And so we reinvented ourselves and started to be a small business company. And that's how we got through the early 2000s. Interesting. Huge. Yeah. At the same time, I would also say what was wonderful about Intuit, um, not just we reinvented the products and what the company stood for. I think there was such acknowledgement by the leaders of the types of leaders that are needed at the time the company was going through. And what I mean by that is, in the early 90s, Scott, as the founder, said, hey, I'm a great founder, but as the company gets bigger, I'm not as big of an operator. 
let me go find a CEO. And therein lied Bill Campbell. Mm. We were 500 plus million revenue company. And he said, hey, for us to get to the next level of great in the billions of dollars, that's not me, Bill Campbell. Wow. So let's find another CEO. And so we, he found uh, Steve Bennett, who was a 23-year veteran, direct report of Jack Welsh from GE, a renowned leader, ran $8 billion businesses coming to quote unquote rinky dink into it when we were about five hundred million. And it was a recognition by Bill that says we have the we the company have this potential to be X. I don't have that experience as much to get us to X, but I'm gonna find somebody that does. Wow. And so it was not just reinventing the products and who the company was, but also the leaders that are needed at the time. Yeah, that's a massive lesson. Yeah. I love that you talked, you talked a little bit about loyalty equaling longevity, that that was something that kind of came out of that two, or the 2000 crash was the people that were loyal to the brand and stayed and kind of dug in deep. Um, they were rewarded by the company being loyal to them long term. You also mentioned authentic leadership. Walk us through a couple of the key things that you would pull from authentic leadership and how you would incorporate that today. Yeah, great question. Um, Intuit had a framework which I apply and I love. It's in my heart and core. Uh, I also brought it to uh, Khan Academy and it's wonderful that Khan Academy is aligned to it as well. But the thought at Intuit is every leader has a personal true north. The company has a true north. And, and the way that the framework works is you have three key stakeholders that you have to serve, employees, customers, shareholder. And you have to make sure as a leader, you balance short and long. So there's five dimensions by which to be a leader. Mm. And it's in that order. And so you have to build a company that makes it a great place to work for its employees so that they can deliver amazing things to the customer. And when you do that, the shareholder metrics kind of things come. Yep. And then you want to balance short and long because if you're too short-sighted, it's not going to be a long going concern. If you're too long, um, you know, you can architect something for purity, but then you can't deliver the short term results. So that's the five dimensions. And the framework works such that you need employees, customers, shareholders, um, and they all are needed to live. So the analogy is think about employees like air. You can't survive uh, with, for two minutes without air. Think about customers as water, and then think about shareholders as food. And water is, you know, two days, food is two weeks, you know, I'm, I'm obviously generalizing. But the point is, uh, you need all three, but they're in different degrees. Mm. And that embeddedness of employees to deliver for customer to then the shareholder comes is the loyalty that the company gave to, the Intuit gave to its employees, and then that got right. reciprocated. It got reciprocated huge. The, yeah. the first time I think I ever heard of this concept of employees first was with Southwest Airlines, where they <laughs> said that our customer is number two and our employees are number one. And it really resonated with me as being accurate because we used to grow, you know, when I was growing up, it was the customer is always right. That's and right. It seemed, it seemed so backwards. Or then, you know, corporate America was always that it was about profit and growth and profit and growth. And, and the employees felt like they were on a treadmill or they were being ground down. When do you think we've started to see the shift for this employee-first culture? Because it is being mentioned more and more. It's still not the norm, but 
when did this shift start? Um, hmm. You know, for me personally, it started, and I'm outdating myself now, it started when I was working at Pepsi. So this was right, this was probably three or four years out of college. I worked in investment banking and that, no disrespect to that industry, that is not an employee-centric <laughs> company by no. any stretch. Nor customer. Nor customer, <laughs> okay. Um, Pepsi, just as I was, uh, at the time that I was there, they had the customer is why, that was definitely a big mantra, but they flipped it on its head and they had an upside down triangle. And their way of interpreting this, so this was in the mid 90s, upside down triangle where the, the widest part of the base of the triangle is the employees. And for Pepsi at the time, it was truck drivers because it's all about distribution. Sure. And then the CEO is on the, if it's an upside down triangle, is the one that's, I don't know, I say last. On the bottom. On the bottom. Yeah. And that was a big flip for Pepsi at the time. Uh, and a, I think a very appropriate one. So for me, I've had that experience. And then certainly um, I can point to a handful of companies in Silicon Valley when I moved out here after business school that really had that employee mantra into it. I think Adobe is similar. Workday is similar. PeopleSoft. Those are the names of companies that mm. I feel really put employees first to then deliver on the customer. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, if we've got these really engaged employees with a high net promoter score for the employee side, they're going to take care of the customers Correct. because they're just happy and excited. And it's kind of our, it's our opportunity to, or we get to, or we're, we're thrilled to Correct. Tell, talk about what did you, um, I guess with, with Khan Academy after coming out of Intuit for so long and what's the scope of Khan Academy? How many employees do you have? Like when I listen, it's still Saul doing the darn videos. Uh, does, he ever, does he sleep or does he just record more <laughs> videos all day long? No, you know, he has an amazing gift um, to take complex concepts yeah. and teach it in a way that's quirky, fun, but all within five or seven minutes because that's about the attention span that anybody has at any one given time. Yeah. It is hard for us to codify that gift, to be brutally honest. And yeah. so he does do a lot of our videos because it's incredibly effective for our learners. The tone that he uses, like I said, the quirkiness. It just um, works. It does. And it, it puts the student at ease, right? Yeah. Because you're listening to Uncle Sal or Cousin Sal, you know, erasing on a, a blackboard or saying, ooh, hmm. And then he does this little tangent and you don't feel like it's a lecture. Yeah. And again, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So like how big is, is the Khan Academy now in terms of scope and number of employees? My vision is that you're going from a massive company like into it into a a hundred person Khan Academy. Is it way more than that? Not quite, but yes, I am going from something massive to something that's not massive at all. Yeah. Um, Intuit is about a seven, eight, 9,000 person company, 5 billion right. in revenue. Yeah. Khan Academy is right now we're 230 people. Okay. Um, and our quote unquote revenue that's measured by donations and earned revenue is about 50 million. Okay. So it's a real business though. 250 employees, you're dealing with politics and cross-functional decision-making. You're dealing with some of the layers that, that you would have had experience in it at, um, at Intuit. Mm -hmm. What, what doesn't work for an executive? Cause I see this all the time, especially at the COO level where the CEO is trying to hire the COO to come in and run the company for them or help in that yin and yang kind of relationship. 
what doesn't work going from a big corporate environment into that more entrepreneurial um, environment? Or, and I don't know if Khan Academy is more entrepreneurial, but I'm, again, my guess. Yeah, um, it is. It's still startup-y, to be honest. Um, yes, there is an, an absolute yin and yang with Sal and I. Um, we're very complementary, and I think that's what makes this work. The things that he gets a lot of energy from, which is the external speaking, um, the TED Talks, the donor stewardship, um, were necessary evils in my general manager jobs, but it's not where I got most of my energy from. Interesting. And so for him to get a lot of energy, it's awesome for him to do that. In return, I get a lot of energy running the company, at the internal part of yep. um, shipping a product, getting marketing to come up with campaigns and awareness to increase reach um, to putting in HR policies and making sure we stay on budget. I mean, I have a full GM role, if you will, um, because yeah. all those functions report to me. So you guys um, have figured out, you figured out the yin and yang between the two of you. Yeah, because the things that doesn't give him as much energy, which is running the company, yeah. um, I very much enjoy. And so we don't always agree, nor should we, because, but I think together, the company gets the best of both of us and that whole is very much needed from the company. So where did you need to adapt when you left into it at, you know, 9,000 people and, and coming into Khan Academy at, a, you know, probably 200 ish. How did you have to adapt your skills or your leadership style or um, your way of thinking? Where did you have to? Yeah, there's, there's two parts. Um, I would say the, business model I had to adapt to, which is still, I'm still trying to adapt to. Um, and let me describe that. In a nonprofit, um, everything on my left hand, or sorry, in a, in a corporate for-profit world, which is where I've spent the majority of my career, you build great products, you market it, you uh, understand the competitive landscape, you provide more value than anybody else, the user that loves the thing that you built pays for the thing that you built. It's all on one hand. And mm -hmm. it's a wonderful feedback loop. Great. Khan Academy, I do all those things on my quote unquote or my left hand, but the dollars come from my right hand. Wow. And the philanthropists, the grants that we do, they're not the users. And that's a bit of a tension um, because there's many grants or donations that people would like to give us that we don't accept because it's not aligned with our mission. Well, wow. uh, that's one. So there has to be a fair amount of overlap for us because we want to stay pure to that mission. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big difference from corporate to nonprofit. I think the other thing that's different in how I lead uh, slightly in my intuit world, even with it being such an employee-centric company, um, leaders need to lead with what I call the, a steady hand, you know, a strong mind, you know, strategic, but then also heart. Mm. And you need all three. That was a very big lesson that I learned from Bill Campbell in particular. Um, but in the for-profit world, uh, you know, corporate, um, the heart you don't lead with as much. Um, it could be perceived as a weakness. A weakness, yeah. 
in the for in the nonprofit, particularly at Khan Academy, where we are so mission based, um, I have to flex that heart muscle even more. more. It needs to be more pronounced here, which is great um, because they're not motivated by the stereotypical things, money, stock options, things like that. What a huge shift. Yeah. The people that come here, and I love, love, love this about Khan Academy, to a T, all 200 plus people are here because of the mission. They really want to make a difference in children's lives. How do you get a nonprofit to operate like a business? How do you get, um, or is this a bias that I'm painting on it based on no information whatsoever? Like I, I assume nonprofits are clunky and nobody gets anything done and we have meetings for the sake of meetings, but I can't see that being the case with Khan Academy. How do you get a nonprofit to operate like a business? <laughs> that was the very or, question. Or is that, even, is that even the goal? Maybe we should get businesses to act more like nonprofits. I don't know. I think there's a lot to learn on both sides, to be honest. I don't think it's uh, nonprofits should be more business oriented or businesses should be more kind of mission based. It, you need those are wonderful things on both sides to learn from each other. Um, that very question was something I grappled with, to be honest. When I it took me several months to decide to come to Khan Academy because I said to Sal, we went on many walks, Starbucks things, and I said, Sal. I know how to grow an organization. I know how to grow businesses. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about nonprofits. And um, he said, no, I want this nonprofit, which has this innate mission in it to be more effectively and efficiently run and take those lessons from the business world. So I want that. And so over the span of several months of us walking and talking and Starbucks things. Um, I gave him use case after use case to say, okay, if I did this, how is that going to affect Khan Academy? And is that something that's so anti-cultural? Because if it is, that's so inherent to my leadership. Right. And one by one by one, um, we saw things the same way. We just came from different backgrounds. Um, and so that's been wonderful for Khan Academy as well. Were you replacing someone when you came in as the president and COO or were you, was this a new role? Um, I was replacing, um, Shantanu was the prior president COO who, if I, I've, I've only met him once, but I believe he was, um, Sal's college friend, um, math competition friend, I believe. Okay. Um, and he left to go to Google back in 2015, I believe. And then Sal ran the company as the CEO slash COO and realized that that's not where most of his energy is. Um, and so he wanted to hire, again, another president COO. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, how do you and Sal embrace conflict? You said earlier that you have, you know, good debate, or you said you don't really agree on everything at times, mm -hmm. or exact, exact wordings. Um, and I, I believe in um, Pat Lencioni and Five Dysfunctions of a Team talked about, you know, really, really embracing good, healthy conflict. How do you guys embrace good, healthy conflict? How do you encourage that in the organization? And conflict may not be the right word, but good, healthy debate for the good of the organization. How do you embrace that, work through that? And then how do you also not um, you know, get hurt feelings or take things personally uh, and still engage that way. Yeah. 
for us, for let's talk. You asked multiple questions in there. So for yeah. Sal and I, um, that's okay. For Sal and I, um, it really starts with a common set of values and a common set of principles, and uh, inherent trust and respect for each other's perspectives. They're different for sure, um, and we don't see eye to eye many times because we come from different perspectives. But the fact that we have that fundamental trust and belief and respect uh, of the differences, we take the time to share the perspectives and the rationale for why we have that perspective. And then in my language, we walk a mile in the other person's shoes to say, okay, now I understand why you have that. Here's my rationale. And then we come to alignment. Great. Uh, so that's how we do it just between Sal and I. And that's what, how we try to scale that across the organization as well. What are you What are you focusing on in your role now as president and COO? What are you focusing on in 2019? Yeah, so um, you talked about this 2010 TED Talk, and then I forget the name, Draper, you said, oh, we've got to get this into my classroom. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so when you think about the heritage of Khan Academy, wonderful heritage, it was a online education tool or product for the self what we call the self-motivated independent learner. Yeah. Which is great, um, but they came to us. Right. And it's, and it's less than 1% of the kids probably too. Correct. And it's the self-motivated ones that come to us that want to accelerate. Or if they're self-motivated because they weren't the smart kid in college, it's a way to supplement. Awesome. Awesome, but not sufficient. And so when I got here uh, two years ago, it was, okay, how do we build on that? Or what I call standing on the shoulder of giants, right? How do you build on that uh, with a great product and a great brand? But rather than being reactive to them coming to us through a Google search, which is predominantly how they find us, hmm. let's go to where they're learning, which is the classroom. And so we've embarked for the last two years um, solving for the classroom as well. So last two years, we started the by any stretch, because that's not our goal. Our goal is to help the teacher provide personalized learning uh, and mastery inside their classroom by giving them a set of tools. So teachers have one of the hardest jobs. I really do believe that. Um, they have an average class size of 35 to 40 people. It's impossible. It is. And in any given bell curve, you have, call it 10 to 15% that are bored because you're going too slow. Yeah. You have another 10, 15, 20% that says, I'm checked out because you're going too fast. Yep. And so it's really hard to do differentiated learning in such a tough ratio. Long-winded way of saying, we're trying to go into the classroom, build these tools for the teacher. And then in 2019, we're actually fulfilling the ecosystem of the learner, the teacher. And then there's a third actor in this play, as I call it, the districts. The districts want to grow and, and get their districts to perform. Um, and so we have a small but mighty district strategy to help bring Khan Academy into the classroom. Mm. 
Um, and that helps us target certain districts. It helps us uh, go after districts that need our help, have picket metric, 60% free and reduced lunch, you know, 80% Hispanic, African-American de demographic, whatever the it is. And we say, okay, let's go into the classroom, use our stuff for 30 minutes every week as a supplementary resource for you. We have efficacy gains that show that if you do that for 30 minutes a week, you will be one to two times better, more uh, equipped to handle the level that you're at and to advance than if you didn't do it with us. That's cool. And so that's that a big a, part of our strategy going forward. Yeah. What do you work on day to day? If you think about your role and your direct reports, what are you working on? Um, I spend a lot of time getting the right who in place and then getting the right who to define the what. And then as we define the right what with the prioritization, the strategic plan, then giving those employees and empowering them uh, to do the how. That's That's I, was, I was at a mastermind event recently and one of the guys in the group said, it's not a how problem, it's a who problem. It's not <laughs> how do I do something, it's who. It is, and the higher you go, and this is what I learned, it, uh, I, I want to give credit to Jeff Bezos, this is where I learned it from. Um, you know, he talked about early in your career when you're a manager or you're an individual contributor, success of an individual contributor is knowing how to do something. That's your functional craft. Right. Then as you become kind of in the director, VP level, it's about your strategic thinking. How do you define what it is that you're going to do? and then manage a group to get it done. As you get to the VP, senior VP level, or in my case, GM, whatever the titles are, it's all about the who at that point. It's getting the right people in the right jobs, in the right functions, clarity of roles and responsibilities, effective decision-making frameworks, and unleashing and empowering that group to bring their best selves to work, to deliver on that customer. It's interesting. And if you've got all the right who's, you don't have to worry about skill development because they've already got the skills, don't they? Correct. Is that where most, where are most companies failing today? It feels like as I'm talking through this a little bit, that they are hiring great people, but that aren't rest necessarily the right who's for what they're working on. So we spend all our time trying to give them the skills, even if we're not trying to manage them or hold them accountable. I think if we flip the org chart upside down, we're still trying to give them skills at something they should already have the skills at. Are you past that already? Is that what you mean by the who's? Or, or do you spend time on skill development as well? Um, or is that a smaller company thing? Yeah. Let's uh, define skills. That I think of skills in two ways. One is the functional craft. So if you're a designer, how do you have wonderful interaction design, visual design kinds of things? So that's the functional craft. Yeah. The other part of skills to me is the leadership side. Right. That's what I was talking about more, the soft yeah. skill leadership. And so for me, I spend a lot of time teaching the softer side, but I've hired externally knowing that they have the harder side, the IQ part. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not here to teach them the, ha, the IQ part. I have yeah. I have amazing product people, engineers, designer, leaders. My VP of design is amazing. My VP of engineering is amazing. Um, my CFO, you know, every single leader that reports to me 
has their functional craft. Mm. Now it's about how do I get them to work together and make sure that there's no gaps that fall in between. You know, my analogy here, I'm a big sports person. My analogy is football. My job is the offensive coordinator or the pick one. Um, I'm not a position coach. Mm. But, you know, um, but, and I have position coaches, but my job is to devise the plays so that the quarterback knows what they're doing because it's an it's a interdependent system to each other. <laughs> so are we doing a seven drop pass? You know, is the offensive line blocking to create room for the running back? Uh, are the wide receivers doing their routes effectively to get it downfield? You know, whatever the analogy is, sure. I'm not te- teaching the specific technical skill but I'm orchestrating and coordinating the plays. Interesting. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen with, um, I mean, we're going to come down through another cycle. We're, we're due for this next kind of recession or downturn. What do you think businesses are going to have to do to adapt to that? And then second part of this question, and I guess you're seeing the theme, I ask multiple questions at once. Um, what are we going to do when the automation and AI starts to hit companies kind of in the five to 10 year mark? How do we need to adapt in our careers and as companies? Hmm. So on your first question, which is what are we doing on a downturn? Mm-hmm. Um, in any downturn, it should happen whether you're in a downturn or not, but being very clear and focused on what you deliver the most thing of is really important. And when there are lesser and lesser resources, like in a downturn, financial resources in this case, um, it is much it is that much more critical to stay focused okay. on the thing that really matters the most. Um, and not get too divergent in all the things that you need to that you want to get done. But what are the critical things that must get done? I think that distinction is very important in a downturn. Your second part question is with AI and things like that. Um, I think we need to be better prepared in high school and colleges. I'm not saying everyone should be STEM by any stretch because we'll lose the art of liberal arts. And that's Mm -hmm. really where the EQ part comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do you leverage such great tools and how do you combine it so that leaders know how to use those tools the best? left to its own devices, and you just use technology for technology's sake, you'll lose the very judgment that you can never program. You can never kind of put logic into AI so that it takes care of all the scenarios and all the human behavior dynamics that happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So someone still has to lead the AI group or the AI algorithm, right. if you will. Yeah. So you see STEM as being critical, I agree. Um, so you talk about focus. How do we say no more as leaders? How do we work on you know, drawing boundaries, saying no to certain projects, keeping our team focused on the critical few versus the important many? What are some things that you do to say no or to just keep your team and yourself focused? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. You learn the best strategy is, you know, I forget who said it, but the best strategy is not necessarily what you say you're going to do, but more importantly, what you're not going to do. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be the best, focus has to happen. And so for us, that's hard because our mission of 
free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. You can put a Mack truck through that in, in spades. It's all about sequencing. And it's all about the critical skill sets that you have to deliver on the most critical things in a particular order that helps leverage each other as a stepping stone. And the way you communicate that so that the people understand it's not that you don't want to do it or that you don't think their idea is a good one. It's we have a finite set of resources. This is what we're going to do now that leads to how we can do that other thing better later. 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 Yeah. yeah. It's almost like building a home. Like I know we want to put in the wolf stove with the red knobs and the beautiful cabinets, but we're still putting in the drywall and the plumbing and electrical and foundation. We got to do the foundation first, right? We can't, the wolf stove will come, but give us time. Correct. Um, I've got one, one final wrap up. If you were your 21 year old self and you were getting ready to embark on your leadership career, what advice would you give the 21 year old Ginny Lee that, um, that you now know to be true? Oof. Um, I learned that lesson, not when I was 21, but I learned it from a, a business school professor of mine named Jim Collins. And he basically said, um, don't pay attention to the title. Don't pay attention to uh, kind of adjectives that you think you will get your confidence associated by. Focus on the company and its values and making sure it's aligned with yours. So at the time, I was 25 years old, trying to think about what I want to do after business school. And, you know, you had your investment banking, consulting, all those kinds of things. And he, he, he actually was the one that told me about Intuit. And he says, Ginny, you're a very, very uh, values-driven, people-centric person. <laughs> Don't think about manager XYZ or product manager or, you know, business development, forget about the title or the level. If you can bring, if you find a match in a company that is aligned to the values where you could authentically be yourself, then you're going to bring your best self to that company. Awesome. And uh, that has carried me for 25 years now. That's super cool. I hope your hope your kids are catching that one too. This is one my I'll have my kids listen to. I I can't believe you had Jim Collins as a business school professor. That's just not fair. <laughs> is it the same Jim Collins? <laughs> it same is. Jim Collins? It is. I, <laughs> I, awesome. I have been so blessed. He is um he is a dear friend of mine. Nice. Um, his wife and I went to business school together in the wow. same class. Um. Love him, his books, what he stands for. Um, he's been a wonderful Same. mentor for me. Yeah, and one, of, one, of the, one of the great business thinkers of our time too. And he's done all the research on it. It's, it's amazing. But it's kind of like saying like when Picasso was teaching me how to paint, I blah, blah, blah. I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I didn't mean to name drop and I'm no, sorry about that. No, it was uh, great. I loved it. It was great. I just wanted to give credit where credit was due. Um, yeah. Because he's it, such an influential person to me. Yeah, no, it's great. It was a wonderful lesson. Ginny Lee, President and COO for the Khan Academy. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Really, really appreciate all the time and the ideas that you gave us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. 
To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.